Hello, friends, and welcome to The Shrink and the Pundit. I'm Jeff Salzman, the Pundit, and I am here today, as always, with my dear, longtime integral comrade, Dr. Keith Witt, the Shrink. Hey, Dr. Keith, how you doing today? I'm doing great. Hi, Jeff, and hi, everybody. Yay. So today, folks, we're going to talk about a topic that actually I find very inspiring. It feels very appropriate for me for this stage of my own psychological and spiritual development, and it's the topic of self-love. And I have to say, if, if you're cringing a little bit, I understand, <laughs> because, you know, I mean, we're all baby boomers, Keith and I are at least, and we've been criticized uh, for going a little overboard on the self-love thing. We were the me generation after all. But Keith, I really appreciate how you rehabilitate the term self-love. And, you know, show it not only to be different than narcissism and hedonism, but that it is a central aspect of human development. And, it, you know, it has a history in our development. It has a present. It has a future. And really helps us to be, you know, not just big self-lovers, but big lovers of the world. So maybe we just start there, Keith, and, and tell us a little bit about how you see self-love as an aspect of development. I like my favorite definition of love is one that I heard from David Data, maybe got 20 years ago now, where he said, loving something or someone is being at one with that person or being at one with uh, what you're loving. And so loving myself is feeling as a warm sense of oneness with myself as a good, caring and beautiful person. Um, and all of us feel this to some extent or another. We have moments that ebb and flow um, that where we feel that sense of oneness with ourselves, a sense of coherent unity with ourselves as good, caring, beautiful people. Mm -hmm. And so self-love is made possible by human development because you've got to have a sense of self to have self-love, but it's also compromised by human development. And uh, the interplay between um, development, um, sense of self, self-love, moral development, and ego development is utterly fascinating to me. Hmm. And it's central to um, my work as a psychotherapist right. um, and central to all change work in one way or another. So how does it, I guess, begin if we look at, we, you know, as integralists, we always look at this trajectory of our own development. And uh -huh. maybe we start with how do we relate to ourselves um, from day one? Uh, actually, it's from day minus 90. Really? <laughs> in, in, the third in utero, huh? Yeah. In the third <clears throat> trimester, our brains um, begin to encode implicit memories which are expectation patterns about how the world is. These expectation patterns don't feel like memories. Implicit memories are different from explicit memories, which feel like something we don't remember. Implicit memories uh, come up when they're cued, and they have emotions and stories and experiences associated with them, but they don't feel like something being remembered. And the implicit memories that we lay down in the third trimester is of unity with everything. 
because we're one with the womb. We're functionally one with the organism in the amniotic sac. And so we have circuits that are um, constellated and myelinated for that kind of unity. And so we're, we come, as we're being, right before we're born, the third trimester, we have the experience of I am love. There isn't an, an I, there isn't a separate I, but the experience of I am love is programmed deeply into our nervous systems. Yeah. So, so this then, would be that sort of fused state with mother. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, that that sort of oceanic oneness. Oceanic oneness. Yeah. Oceanic oneness, I am love. Yeah. Now then you're born. And when an infant is born, infants are born into a social environment. Uh, and as when they're born, even though there isn't a conscious sense of self, there is a self in another. And the mother looks at the child and holds the child and kisses the child and smiles at the child and coos the child, all the senses. And all those senses are communicating to the child, um, you are loved. Hmm. And so we go from I am loved to I am loved. Um, and uh, for for an attuned mother uh, who's present and she's congruent and she's contingent and, and her communication is, is marked with the child, the child will feel again and again and again. They disconnect from mom and then they want mom, they look out and then they're connected and then they discover again, I am loved, I am mm. loved, I am loved. And then they go back out in the world and maybe they're not loved. Well, they... Infants can't move around until they're six or seven months, but they'll they'll disconnect. Their attention will go elsewhere. About seventy percent of the time, infants and mothers are miscoordinated, but mothers will be tuned into that, and most of the time, they'll notice that, and then they'll attune to the child, and then find the child. And as the mother finds the child, the child finds him or herself in the mother. And as they, the child discovers himself, the infant discovers him or herself, hmm. they discover themselves as loved by a mother. Mm -hmm. And in those times when that doesn't happen because the kid's upset or mom's not around or so on, the kid's nervous system will respond to that with distress and dissociation. And those circuits get really down also in those first nine months, more so if a mother isn't uh, an attuned mother. Now, so, between, so would this, Keith, be the beginning of shadow? Yes. Uh, shadow, the, yeah. yeah, actually, the beginning of shadow is the not, first... Not, not in utero. Don't tell me the shadow comes on before we're born. The shadow, the shadow began billions of years ago. <laughs> first life occurred that could reproduce itself. It began to program the instincts and the drives. Um, the instincts and the drives then began... We didn't lose any of them. It's including transcendence, a hologram. Yeah. And so we're born with an incredible array of instincts and drives that are informing us um, from the very beginning. Yeah. And then these in, in interplay with our emergent sense of self um, um, become shadow. And it's very relevant to self-love um, for a variety of reasons. And the reasons are is that our sense of self, you know, the sense of meanness, is an unconscious sense of meanness. You know, there's some neuroscientists who say that there's an explicit self, which is the I that I feel like I am relating to you right now. But the, 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 our sense, our deeper sense, is our implicit self, that background hum of me in the background. And that background hum of me is me as somebody good, 
me as somebody that's lovable, me as somebody that's virtuous, or it's a background hum of me as somebody that's at risk or that's not good or that's shameful. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's the background hum coming from our non-conscious, our adaptive unconscious, from our implicit self. And that's shadow informing us about us. And now for an infant um, who has an immature nervous system and they're existing symbiotically with mom, you know, that inner subjectivity, I am, I am loved, um, uh, uh, supports the physical, psychological development and the social development of the infant. And so the baby grows. But around 10 or 11 months, um, the baby learns how to walk. The baby learns that, he, that, that he or she is a separate entity from mom and needs to go to mom for comfort and develops the capacity for shame emotions if disapproved of. And so from 10 to 18 months, as I mentioned before, about every eight minutes, uh, Western babies hear the word no. And when they do, um, their nervous system, they feel disapproved of, their nervous system goes into a shame reaction. They blush, they look down, um, the muscles around their neck and shoulders weaken, and they begin to relate to mother temporarily or father as a stranger. They feel disconnected. Mm -hmm. And that disconnection is distressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what mom does is say, no, don't break, don't, don't break the glass. Kid, let's go of the gl- glass. And then a secure kid, she picks him up and she says, now you're loved again. And now the, the kid's nervous, nervous system experiences, mom is back, I'm okay. But the message is, now I am loved conditionally by other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel loved when um, I'm getting those disapprovals, when mother isn't around or father isn't around. Mm-hmm. Just to put that into context, we start with, I am love mm-hmm. in the third trimester. That's right. <laughs> I am loved as we are born mm-hmm. into mommy's arms. And then uh, we're talking here now a year old or so. I am loved conditionally. Yeah. All right. I'm loved conditionally by others. All right. Now around two or th- And remember, these keep building on each other. It's including transcend. Just like the instincts are there in shadow. Um, just like the drives are there. These things are there, and then we, we develop these, these emergent capacities. And so between two and, and three, a child develops a theory of mind. They experience themselves as a thinking being and parent as uh, a thinking being and begins to develop capacities for self-observation. Hmm. As the child self-observes, the child can observe themselves of, uh, following or not following all the rules, all the instructions that they learned for those that second year of life when they were hearing all those approvals and disapprovals. And as a child observes themselves doing something wrong, um, they dis- their nervous system will disapprove of them and they'll feel a sense of shame. Um, and now there's an added capacity, I am loved by myself conditionally. So we go from I am loved to I am loved to I am loved by others conditionally and now I'm loved by myself conditionally. And this is, you're saying, three-ish, four-ish? Yes, between, somewhere between two and five. Okay. Okay. And, you know, by, it's happening between two and three, but it gets, it becomes more and more robust. Now, the other part of this is that our moral sense now is growing along with this. Um, our, our, our initial moral sense is pure physiological. It's, I'm either I'm feeling okay or I'm not feeling okay. There's, mm-hmm. there's not a sense of self. But with 11 or 12 months old 
and the kid can begin to feel shame if disapproved of, now we begin to have a moral sense of, I need to do the things that I've determined are the right things and I feel okay. And if I do the wrong things, I feel shame emotions. I feel guilt and shame and chagrin and regret and that kind of stuff. Now, interestingly, the moral system that we develop um, at this time between two and five is a magic moral system. Hmm. So a magic moral system can be, um, uh, um, I feel bad when, you know, mommy goes and shuts the door. It means I'm a bad boy. Okay, that's just a magical system. Yeah. Or I feel, you know, I, I, I feel bad about myself um, when... Um, my sister's playing with my train and, and I grab my, and, and, and that's not right, you know, and, and that's wrong. And I, and not only do I feel bad about her, I feel bad about me. I mean, this is, it's a non-rational magical system. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if I'm a bad boy, if I'm mad, um, I'm a bad boy, if I'm not smiling, um, I'm yeah. a bad girl, if I'm not being nice to everybody all the time. These are essentially magical constructs because they don't make any fucking sense whatsoever, really. Right. But, you know, kids don't have even concrete operational minds. And so this gets tied into I'm loved conditionally and we have a magic moral sense, which progresses into a mythic moral sense between the ages of 6 and 11. Hmm. Now there are rules, but the rules don't have to make rational sense. You know, like... Um, it's not okay to um, be naked in public, um, but it is okay to be naked uh, in my bath. Um, okay, well, that doesn't make any sense rationally, but it certainly makes sense from the intersubjective, uh, intersubjective realms of culture. Um, um, I, it, you know, it's wrong for me to say the word um, shit, uh, but it's right for me to say the word poop. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so th these are the kinds of mythic non-rational black and white concrete operational rules that we inculcate during this period. And now we have this concrete operational um, moral system that's now on top of the magical moral system. And when our nervous system, our shadow self, observes ourself violating any of those rules, it goes into a shame reaction. And then when we deal with the shame reaction, either by a defensive state, we avoid it by denying or suppressing or blaming other people, or we um, deal with it by going to someone we care about and saying, you know, I feel ashamed of myself, help me out here, and we get some kind of input. And what this anticipates is how we're going to deal with defenses and how we're going to deal with shame and how we're going to deal with separateness later on in life um, with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So this this comes online here from ages you're saying five to ten, yeah, five or six to around eleven, I'd yeah. say. And then then the brain goes through a critical period, and we become formal operational, and we can begin to think relativistically. And now we have relativistic moral all right, systems. All right, and that's good. Let's go back to the previous one, the five to ten. Yeah, where so where self love at this stage of the game. So at this stage of the game, um, the child, if if I'm if I'm doing the if, if, if I'm, I'm following fine. the rules, if I'm being good, if I'm following the rules uh, of the culture, and if I'm following the magical rules, you know, if the people who are supposed to be good be happy with me are happy with me, mm -hmm. you know, if it's the forces that are supposed to be you know in line are in line, 
I have a sense of a oneness with myself. Yeah. If I don't follow the rules, I have a shame emotion, and I, then I have a sense of separateness. You know, shame is the separation emotion. So and, shame, would shame be the, uh, you know, the polar opposite of self-love? or? Well, what shame is, is... is um, it's the uh, absence of self-love? It's an interruption of it. Okay. You know, you know, shame is our nervous system, our shadow telling us that we're doing something wrong by our own standards. Okay. Now, what shame ultimately does is it leads us, this is why I call my, my book The Gift of Shame, The Gift of Shame. Ultimately, shame will lead us to unity because those shame emotions guide us to when we're not congruent with our interior values and it guides us to refine those values. But refining those values is very, very tricky. Because so we developed this relativistic moral system, 12 to 15 to 20 and so on, where there's shades of gray and so on. So that's now added on top of all those other moral systems um, um, and all those defenses that we developed for violating moral systems. They're all they've all gotten elaborated also. And every time we have a shame emotion and go into a defensive state or we try to avoid paying attention to it. We're strengthening the separation we have, that, that kind of conditional self-love that we had. But every time we take the shame emotion and we look more deeply into it, we go, okay, if I'm ashamed or if I'm guilty, what value am I violating? Mm -hmm. And if I'm violating the value that I have to be working all the time to be good or I have to be perfect to be good or everybody has to like me for me to be good, if I can examine that, what I'm doing is I'm connecting my, the forward leading edge of my moral system with the more primitive moral system. And when you connect differentiated parts in a complex system like a human being, they tend to integrate towards greater complexity. Yeah. And this is how we use our experience of self-love and our advancing edge of our moral system to create integration and to create more self-love. Um, cool. now, now we can begin to, to bring it together. Now we can begin to um, take this system, which is not coherent, Human consciousness is, is too complex and too challenging and too, has too many um, um, uh, directions that it grows in for it to naturally become coherent. We need to take charge of our development to make it more coherent. So is and, this then the next step? Yes. This so, is the next so, step. So we're teenagers now? Yes. Okay. Now, teenagers are, are genetically programmed to want to bond with other teenagers. Um, they're, they're, it's the one developmental fulcrum where they're much more interested in your own age than you are for people older or younger. And the reason for that is in tribal societies, this is where you made your original alliances. And so teenagers are very interested in not being, not appearing as bad or as wrong to other teenagers. Right. And so when they feel a disconnection between their values and the inner subjectivity around them, they're motivated to not tell anybody because, you know, it's a little bit scary. And so now we're developing, do we have cult safe teenage cultures where you can talk about feeling distressed and ashamed? Or do we have unsafe teenage cultures where you have to protect that and you have to kind of feel a secret sense of badness about yourself because um, you know, you and I grew up in homophobic culture. Yeah. Okay. So if you're bisexual or homosexual in that culture and you're hanging out with other guys, you better hide the fact that you're bisexual or homosexual because those guys are going to be critical of you and you're going to feel bad. And yeah. so now at, we have this. At, at, the, at a minimum. At a minimum, yeah. Yeah. You might get your face uh, smashed in. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, it was it was a pretty violent, yeah, violent time. Yeah, you know, we we, we should have a shrink in the pundit where you and I talk about what it was really like in the sixties. <laughs> I think <laughs> I know, that really. would be a really good episode. Maybe our yeah, next one. Me too. And so in the, in that situation now, the depending upon the culture that the teen's in. The teen, when they feel distress or shame or so on, they can bring it to the culture if it's a if it's, if it's an integral culture, essentially. You know, and I'm finding an awful lot of very enlightened teenagers and young adults who were raised in these kinds of families, or the teen teenager suppresses it, turns it into a defensive state of some sort, a defensive tendency, in the interest of bonding with people that that are, that are important to them. I mean, this is one of the reasons why teenage boys will do a lot of shameful oppositional kind of stuff in groups right. with other boys. One boy will kind of challenge the other boys, let's go do graffiti or something. And one kid will feel ashamed about it or anticipatory shame. I don't want to do it. But he wants to fit into the group, so he'll go and do it anyway. Yeah, because it would be more shameful to not fit in. And then afterwards feel guilty about it yeah. you know, or feel remorse about well, it. Well, this is interesting. And, and I think it's just remarkable. You, you, the statement you made a minute ago that's the key to all of this for, for this stage is – Teens want to get approved of by other teens. Not so important to be approved of by parents at this point. Right. And that drives parents crazy. It drives teachers crazy. It drives parents crazy. Uh, (laughs) It even drives teenagers crazy. It drove me crazy. (laughs) Drove me me completely nuts. Yeah. And I remember... remember But but, 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 Keith, you you said, and I love this, in a tribal um, uh, culture... This is where you would form your uh, primary alliances. That's so true. Yeah. You know, so these are the people who you're going to move forward with. That's and you right. have to you have to find your place with these people. The other people, they're going on before you. But this is your cohort and you got to fit in. And and I need to fit in in a way because of of the lower the lower left is always there. I need to fit fit in a way that feels virtuous, that yes. feels moral. Hmm. And if I don't fit in in a way that feels virtuous, virtuous or moral, it compromises my sense of self-love. This is why, you know, self-esteem is part of self-love, but doesn't equal self-love. It's a much larger, self-love is a much larger construct. Yeah. Um, now, this creates a lot of, of problems in modern society because there's no limit to ego development. And, and so ego development is paralleled by moral development, and it's paralleled by a subjective sense of love of self. Um, now, we can start directing our own evolution at two years old. Hmm. Two, two and three-year-olds are read stories where little kids make choices that determine their developmental arc. Mm-hmm. Four and five-year-old, six-year-old kids can have a sense of their autobiographical narrative where they're the, the, the central figure in their own story. Mm-hmm. And they know that they can make decisions that affect them in that story. And so they can affect their own evolution, their own development in every dimension. They know that intuitively, unconsciously, and then later on as adolescents, they can, they can know it from a self-reflective mm-hmm. standpoint. I remember all of that, Keith. I remember knowing my story when I was five or six. Mm-hmm. I do. And, and, and maybe that's just fundamental to the self-love idea. I mean, I, I, I knew that I was me and that I had a history and that I was going somewhere. And, uh, you know, it got more complex as I went along, but I get it. Yeah. And I personally 
because I'm an Indian type six, which is a fear type, I was born into a warrior culture. And so I existed in shame from earliest memory mm-hmm. because the, the message I got was if you're scared, you're not a, you're a coward. Wow. And, and so I became a counterphobic six. You know, I kept on doing one dangerous thing after another, a challenging thing after another, but the fear never went away. Yeah. Um, and so it com- compromised my capacity for self-love until I could develop to a point in a, where I could examine those dynamics. Um, right. And you can't neurologically examine them until you're, until you're 15 or 16 or 17. Um, so and what, what do you then, mean by that? You can't neurologically examine them. So until you're about 10, kids are concrete operational. They, they experience themselves in the world in concrete black and white terms. And so they can't self-reflect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the reasons why um, I don't work with kids much. Uh, no offense, kids. A little bit boring. <laughs> because I have to deal entirely. I don't know why you hate children so much, Keith. I hate children. Just kidding. <laughs> I understand. Because, you know, there's no self. I have to deal with them symbolically. You know, when I was working with kids, I had to use hypnosis and play therapy. Right. And work with the contingencies of their families. Because I was basically helping their nervous systems grow in areas where they were compromised because the kids didn't have the capacity to have self-reflection on defensive states hmm. that they entered or didn't enter. They, they couldn't really, when they entered a defensive state, they didn't have neurological capacity to go, I'm in a temper tantrum because I enter this state when I feel overwhelmed. Their parents would say those words, but the kids would just hear blah, 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 blah. Because their brains didn't have the, the, the bandwidth to organize that way. Right. 11 or 12, there's a neural pruning process that goes on where we use circuits that were, that we, we expand circuits that um, we're using and we lose through apoptotic cell death, circuits that we're not using, and we learn new capacities. I mean, you know, the most neurons that people have in their life is when they're six years old. After then, uh, through each critical period, unnecessary neurons are pruned and other synapses are more heavily myelinated and we've developed these new capacities. 12, 13, 14, we begin to be able to self-observe and think relativistically and begin to have some kind of insight. And then that gets, that gets progressively more robust until our brain is, is relatively mature at 26. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, this is why tor- teens are so tormented. Um, you know, they're struggling with all these all these moral systems pounded on top of each other with a sense of not wanting to reveal weak or, sh- or, sh- or shameful things to other people in cultures that either welcome, um, can soothe them and, and regulate them externally or not. And the, the teens that don't have the connection with other people, the, in, the inner subjective intimacy, where they can take this kind of distress to someone to try to discover deeper truths, those teens tend to develop symptoms and have problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kids where they have that, where families, sometimes with a good friend or sometimes with therapists and so on, now they can begin to develop the capacities to integrate these different uh, moral systems, to begin to examine these different levels of I'm loved conditionally by others, I'm loved conditionally by myself, and begin to grow. And as we begin to grow, we can um, use um, our sense of not feeling self-love, disconnected from ourselves, and go, well, why am I disconnected? Um, well, I've, my nervous system just told me, my shadow just told me I violated a value. Well, what value did I violate? Well, I violated, violated the value of I'm supposed to always win and I just lost. And so that I, that's shameful. And then mm-hmm. I, 
Then when I examine that, but the, the leading edge, the more conscious edge of my moral of my moral system can say, oh, there's a primitive moral value that I'm only good when I win, I'm not good when I'm bad. I want to refine that that moral system. I want to refine it to I enjoy winning and I don't like losing. It's more uncomfortable, but I'm still a good person whether I win or I lose. And if I'm not losing a little bit, I'm not really at my growth edge. Okay, so you do that enough time and your mm -hmm. unconscious begins to adjust that magical moral system and grows. And this is how you grow your shadow morally. And, and now my unconscious doesn't send me shame reactions when I lose. It just sends me, yeah, it's uncomfortable. And what are we going to learn from this? You know, that becomes an automatic uh, effect that's given to me now by my more coherent unconscious. And I've grown a little bit more accepting, a little bit more at one with myself. Mm -hmm. Now, this is one of the reasons why I think contemplative practice in Christopher Alexander's work, you know, TM, accelerated vertical development, stage development, because people twice a day were engaged in compassionate self-observation. And that compassionate self-observation again and again kept putting the leading edge of their moral system, which was to view things with compassion, with the emerging edge of these more primitive moral systems, and it accelerated the development of shadow, which accelerated the develop their development through worldviews. And then you begin to have these moments where you feel one with everything. When you have those moments of feeling one with everything, you're going back to that original experience in the womb of one with everything. But now we're doing it through ego development, through self-development. We're not doing it through neurological immaturity. We're doing it through depth. And as Ken is brilliantly pointed out in Full Spectrum Mindfulness, and as, um, as I less brilliantly, <laughs> enthusiastically pointed out in, in my book, Integral Mindfulness, you really can't have a complete sense of uh, an unambiguous and an unconflicted sense of self-love in the first tier. Every first tier worldview has um, discrepancies. It has, it has an institutionalized violence that our nervous system knows is wrong. And so there's just always a faint little itch in first-tier um, moral systems, first-tier worldviews, because if you're really true to that first-tier worldview, on some level you're giving yourself license to do violence in thought or deed to some other group or some other person or to yourself, and it just doesn't feel coherent. There's really? Just, so that yeah. alone, just doing violence to others or oneself, uh, violates some sort of built-in code of the nervous system yeah because we're we're organized we're we're organized we want to have position on on personally important hierarchies and we want to protect ourselves but we want to care with other for other people we want to share with other people and we want to be fair with other people I mean, these are genetically mandated these are uh, built in they're built in yeah. they're drives and so when those drives are violated by us allowing ourselves to do violence and thought or deed to somebody else, there's a little moral hook that leaves us going, uh-uh, there's just a disconnection yeah. there. And that so, may be what drove humanity forward and I, drive, I, drives all of us forward as individuals, right? That's exactly right. You know, I kind of love it that you said that because we always can feel our incompleteness yeah. and we want to be complete. And that desire for, complete, for more completeness is the human 
temperamental quality of self-transcendence. Hmm. You know, we know we can, we can imagine ourselves complete, but we know we're not complete. And so that imagination of ourselves complete, annoying or not complete, drives us forward. But say we have a magical um, uh, moral value that I can't really love myself until I'm finally fully complete. Well, then I'm never going to completely love myself because we're never fully complete because there, there's never a complete fullness when we're incarnated. And so if in my contemplative practice, if I discover that magical moral value, I can look at the shame that I feel at not being enlightened 100% of the time and you know fully omniscient 100% of the time. And I go, hmm, I think I'd like to refine that too. It's really nice to be enlightened in a moment. And it's really nice to be omniscient. Mm-hmm. But as a human in, uh, being, in, embodied being, I'm going to go in and out of that. And going in and out of that and getting and having more moments of felt unity is kind of as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. And this is where shame dynamics now start leading us towards deeper unity with spirit. All right. So at this point, Keith, just to put us in context of development, we're talking about moving out of first tier structures, right? Exactly. So we're adults. We've gone through, um, you know, traditionalism, modernism, postmodernism. And uh, it's not to say that we leave them behind, but our leading edge is moving now into a second tier or integral consciousness. Yes. The project, first of all, self-love is always a project. <laughs> you okay. know? All right. It's, you know, the, that, that yearning, that, that yearning for unity of love, that year, yearning for I am love permeates human existence. I, I see it everywhere. I see yeah. it in all art. I see it in all intimacy. It's I lovely see it. to see it. It's, oh. it's, a, it's a practice in and of itself to see it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I got to say, just as an aside here, the self-hatred that humanity has for itself in the collective, particularly green, I got to say, you know, <laughs> where we're seen as a cancer on the planet. Um, you know, that is, that, that, that's part of the, the self-love project writ large. It's that so is, is a, you know, a movement out of green into integral. Yeah. And, you know, part of that is recognizing that, we invest whatever we perceive. We've invested part of ourselves in it. And so whatever I'm perceiving, I'm not just perceiving that object or person. I'm perceiving myself reflected back to me. Yeah. And if I'm disapproving of, of you, I'm perceiving the part of me that I disapprove of, reflected from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ultimately, this is why when we go to integral, integral approves of everything. Yeah. Integral says there's healthy and unhealthy stuff going on all the time. I approve of everything, but I prefer healthy. Yeah. It, you know, Integral says all the first tier memes are speaking to me through me every single day. Yeah. And I'm, a, I'm more caught up in one or the other one of them at different times. Right. Um, and I prefer the healthy manifestation. I don't prefer the unhealthy manifestation, but I accept all of them. With, with this, this, this sense of radical self-acceptance, um, but discernment, discerning in the flex flow compassion, uh, uh, capacity, discerning what's more or less healthy, what, what is more or less consistent with my purpose as I discern it. This leads me to more and more of that sense of, of unity with everything. Yeah. At that point, I'm back to that I am love place that I originally had programmed into my nervous system in the third trimester. Really? But yeah. you got everything else online, too, at this point. Yeah, which is why as people do vertical development, 
you know, that's why the Tibetan monks are giggling all the time. You know, that's why um, the only time that a normal brain looks exactly the same as a fully enlightened um, uh, Tibetan master's brain is when they're lost in uncontrollable laughter. Um, the brain waves <laughs> really? are exactly, the gamma bursts at that point are, are, are indistinguishable. Um, it leads us to more joy and it leads us to more love. Now, that's compromised by all the defenses, by all those moral systems that are still there and always there. So um, I can look back and see my magic moral system. You know, I wake up and I think, why ain't I happy? You uh, know, what have I done wrong? I should be happy, you know. Uh, my mythic system, there's something, you know, I'm doing wrong. And that's still there. You know, all of these systems are still online, but now I can see them instead of be them, if you, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. I can and, I can observe them and I can, you know, in so doing, metabolize them. And, you know, notice the person who's observing is always a little bit more compassionate. Yep. A little bit more caring. Yep. He's at the cutting edge. The observer's at the cutting edge, no doubt. Right. And 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 so this is why Ken focused so much on witness in full spectrum mindfulness and why, you know, in, when I teach attunement, you know, I used attunement rather than witness deliberately because I wanted the concept, the, cons the construct of observing self and others in multiple dimensions with acceptance and caring intent um, to be normalized. And, you know, neuroscientists all agree that attunement's a good thing. Attachment people all agree attunement's a good thing. Just define attunement, Keith. I love your it's, definition. Attunement is being aware with acceptance and caring intent of what I am sensing, what I am feeling on an emotional level, what I'm thinking, how I'm judging, and what I'm wanting. That's attuning mm. to myself. And if I'm attuning to you, I'm considering, I'm wondering what's going on with Jeff with acceptance and caring intent in terms of what Jeff is sensing, feeling, thinking, judging, and wanting with acceptance and caring intent. So that's cultivating that witness that observes self, others in the world with acceptance and caring intent. So I can do that even with my anger, even yeah. with my unwanted material. Yeah. Yeah. And every time you do it, you move a little bit more towards um, wider embrace, a yeah. little bit more. And, and, and also doing that feels virtuous. Okay. Observing self and others with acceptance and caring intent is, is a relativistic, advanced, you know, universal care, universal rights type of moral experience. Huh. Well, that's, that's true. It does, actually. It does feel good to do that. It and good. it feels bad to not do that. It feels bad to uh, cast people outside of my circle, yeah. you know, to make them wrong or bad or other. Well, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time doing that. <laughs> and have have spent a lot of time doing that, but it never felt good. And well, bringing them into the circle does. Well, that's just a reflection of your beautiful consciousness, you know, <laughs> your, your second tier Jeff beautiful consciousness. That you know, that's just you know what that's a reflection of is your your unconscious, your shadow has grown to the point where when you're excluding somebody, you're going, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Yep. And, That's right. and it's not, and it's not like, oh, I'm such an asshole. Something's wrong here. It's like, no, something's wrong here. Where I need to bring some compassion and attention to, to where am I doing excluding? Um, 
You know, I think this is why the Daily Evolver is so popular, because you look at everything with a discerning eye. It doesn't, it's not like hierarchy doesn't exist, but with radical acceptance. You know, there's yeah. acceptance and caring intent for whatever. Yeah. You know? I wish I could do that for myself. <laughs> What's up with that, Keith? You know, uh, uh, there's a, you know, therapist, uh, John Gobbin said this once, you know, like therapists are kind of the ultimate pragmatists when it comes to development. You know, you, you know, whatever, so, if, say I have eight sessions in a day, okay, I might be dealing with a complete, maybe even more, radically different issues, different age cohorts, different kinds of relationships, different moral systems, you know, different, you know, levels of distress. Right. Whatever, you know. Um, and, and so as a therapist, you just kind of attune, you get into the current and go, okay, now where's the current step to become healthier, you know, horizontal health? And where's the current developmental edge where I can help this person, you know, wake up a little bit? Yeah. Um, um, you know, as as you do that, uh, you you look for, for ways, for me, of finding the person's advanced leading edge morality and then connecting that with the trailing edge, with the magical moral systems and the mythical moral systems, which hmm. are more rigid and more Old Testament. Right. And here's a really good way of doing it. Here's an exercise that, that I do a fair amount. You ask yourself this question, and we can do it with self-love. You go, am, at this moment, am I willing to love and cherish myself unconditionally? Okay. Wow. So, so ask yourself that question. What do you feel in your chest as you ask that question? At this moment, am I willing to love and cherish myself unconditionally? Well, my so, answer is me. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, one, I'm not worthy. So do you feel a little tightening in your chest? I do. Okay, so if you feel a loosening in your chest when you ask that question, the answer at that moment is yes, great. If you feel a tightening, the answer is no. So then the next step of the exercise is, okay, why am I not willing at this moment to love and cherish myself unconditionally? Why not? Because I'm bad. Because I'm bad. Okay, Okay, good. Because I'm inadequate, because I've been lazy, because I haven't reached my potential. Because okay. I, you know, All right, I've been I bad. forgot to feed the dog. I you forgot know. to feed the dog. That's <laughs> forgot to feed the dog. Treat my bad dog that way. Okay, so that's all why. All, those are all the reasons why you're not willing to, to love and cherish yourself unconditionally at this moment. Yeah. So now ask yourself the question again. Now at this moment, am I willing to love and cherish myself unconditionally? I feel a shift. What's the shift? I can. I can. I, I have, a, have a little more distance from it just having said that, just having done that exercise. I have a little more distance from my, you know, disapproval of myself. And I could see it as an object more than feel it as a subject, maybe. And in your chest, you probably feel a little looser. I do. A little warmth in my belly. So you notice this exercise doesn't get you into arguing with yourself about the moral systems. It just says, I'm a willing to love and cherish myself unconditionally at this moment. If the answer is yes, great. If the answer is no, why not? Okay, so you answer it because of this, because of that, didn't you, the dog, and so on. And then you answer the question again. Just putting those two moral systems in connection. You know, we're a complex system. People are complex systems. If you link differentiated parts in a complex system, they're biased to integrate to greater complexity. Oh, greater I'm so complexity, happy about that. Yeah, greater complexity in human beings is more compassion and deeper consciousness. Yeah. 
So this exercise, I, I'll write this down in a card and have people do it. I'll suggest that they do it five times a day for the next month. Hmm. And then at the next month, I'll say, well, is it easier is to ask you to, to say yes, to feel that listening when you ask yourself at this moment, I'm willing to love and cherish myself unconditionally. And people go, yeah. And I go, well, that's you growing your shadow. That's you bringing your moral systems together into more coherence. Wow. That's great, Keith. Isn't that great? I love that exercise. You know, I do too, and I, I can feel the fruits of it in this moment. I, I, I practiced it myself. Hey, you know, I mean, it's too bad we don't have, you know, somebody singing out from the minarets five times a day, you know, <laughs> uh, to call us to this kind of prayer. I mean, I get it that that kind of, you know, uh, practice of, uh, of, of t- tuning into this at, you know, five times a day would be a very powerful practice. I suspect that whoever initiated the Muslim practice of prayer five times a day was channeling this particular process. Yeah. And that was the original uh, purpose of it. Now, of course, if you channel it through a conformist worldview, you know, there's going to be some enemies that, that deserve right. you know, punishment. And the, to me, the, the beauty of this is that everybody has suffering. You know, the human consciousness comes with these progressive moral systems that are there to help us be pro- social, but they also torment us. Yeah. Um, and we have good habits and we have bad habits and we know it. And we observe ourselves and our good habits and our bad habits. And, and when we feel ashamed you know, uh, of a bad habit, then we're likely to, to have defensive states and cause problems. Everybody has to deal with this. And so either we take responsibility for it or we don't, and either we enjoy the process or we don't. And enjoying the process, to me, is kind of the greatest human superpower there is. To enjoy the process of supporting my evolution and enjoy the process of supporting the evolution of consciousness on the planet. Um, You see this with children. Uh, Children that have parents that say, I really like it that you made effort and progress. It's a growth mindset. I really liked how you you worked at that. And no, you're getting better at that. That's just so cool. Where they're focusing on supporting the process of development, those kids do better. They try more. They take more risks. They feel better about themselves. When you have parents that say, yeah, that was the best picture ever. Or, you know, you're such a smart kid. Those kids go, now i got to live up to being a smart kid or I'm not right. accepted. Now i got to be the best ever every time I do a painting. They don't take risks. They have fixed mindsets. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's when we surrender to the process of growth, now we're maximizing that human potential. And we can't do it by ourselves. We always do it with other people. And we're not doing it giving other people shit and give, doing violence to other people. We do it cooperatively with other people, bringing out the best in each other. Yeah. Well, I can see that just even as a developmental move in the culture. We have most, at least, you know, leading edge, if you will, parents today. They're they're six-year-olds. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to fail. I mean, we're learning this at a far earlier age than we did when we were kids, for instance, right? You know, know, I was working with a couple uh, yesterday. So this woman's uh, sister is a narcissist because 
she was born injured and was was indulged by her parents shamelessly, which was a horrible thing to do to a child. And so now her sister's all grown and has kids, and, she, and my client has kids. And my client is a really good parent. So she took her five-year-old and her three-year-old to go visit her sister, and her sister's older kids were, were bullying her children. And so, and her children made some mistakes. So she, instead of publicly humiliating her kids when they made mistakes like her sister does, she told her kid, that's not okay. You're going to have to sit on the couch and you can't do this thing anymore. And she did a gentle but firm boundary for the child. Mm -hmm. Her sister was so pissed that she wasn't publicly humiliating her kid that she started attacking her parenting. At which time my client then regressed to uh, a... a, a, primitive state and told her sister she was a bitch just like her daughter okay now everybody got in a big fight you know and then they all they all went home and you know and her husband was all pissed at her father you know so so one thing that happened around this is i told the mother i said you were really engaging in good parenting with your children in that environment you know you were being a superior parent she's relaxed you're oh really people tell me i'm too indulgent i said no you noticed the behavior it's easy to slap a kid or humiliate a kid, and that'll stop them. But if we want them to grow nonviolently, we constrain them, which is uncomfortable, and we keep on letting them know, you know, you have to do the morally right behavior to have more freedom of motion. And if you do the, the, the wrong behavior, you're going to have less freedom of motion. This generally helps their nervous system progress. And she's an emotionally coaching mother. If the kid has an emotion, she identifies it. Um, she gives a word for it. Um, she waits until the kid's ready to talk, and she does problem solving and limit setting. That's emotionally coaching. Kids that have emotionally coaching parents do way better yeah. um, academically and emotionally and with their friends and with self-soothing and lower cortisol and all that kind of stuff. Wow. So, so. we are now at the stage where we can – you know, well, this exercise of in any moment finding the part that's not willing to love and accept myself uh-huh. and asking why not uh-huh. is a that is itself a release. That is itself a you know a move. Mm-hmm. And so we just, I guess, get good at this. This becomes something that is more stable, uh, where we can what stay in an observer role or um, have be able to see our magic and mythic and our, you know, these earlier systems that brought up a shadow. Um, We can see them. And by seeing them, we release them. Right. And that just becomes something that we do more habitually or unconsciously. Yeah. We integrate them. You know, uh, when you have access to the witness, where you just observe all things, you know, just with interest and compassion. That's a, that's a blissful place. So, so if you can choose to go to that place, you just keep choosing to go to that place. You consciously choose to go to a place enough. You're unconscious. Your shadow starts choosing to go there for you. And, and pretty soon you're, you're spending more time looking out through unity yeah. into unity and less time um, – uh, getting caught up in grab attach, attachments, getting caught up in bad habits. Now the bad habits show up, but if a bad habit shows up, I'm less likely to. No, now don't get me wrong. You know when I practice a bad habit, I get ashamed, just like I always got ashamed. But then you know I'll go a little bit deeper and I'll observe the shame and I'll observe the bad habit and I'll go with right. You know and I'll do the whole thing I just described. 
Um, you know, and, and it, I don't suffer too much. Right. I suffer way less, and I spend an awful lot of time feeling happy. Right. Um, so, in, in other words, when you ask yourself this question five times a day, at this moment, am I willing to love and accept myself no matter what? The answer is more and more yes. Yeah. Yeah. More and more yes. And, and you know, since we project ourselves on everything, if I'm loving and cherishing myself no matter what, I'm loving much more likely to be loving and cherishing the world no matter what. Absolutely. You know, like, you know the, I remember when I was, uh, back when I was Episcopal, uh, you know, going to Episcopal church when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, I like most of the ceremonies. But I remember when they did one of the uh, one of the recitings. He loved the world so much that he gave his his only begotten son. Right. And I thought to myself, hmm, love the world so much that he gave. Mm-hmm. Love the world so much that he gave. Yeah. There was always something about that that felt good to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I took that with me when I got pissed off at you know organized religion. Love. Love the world so much that he gave, and I think that's where we grow. We, you know, if if we allow, and now the price of self love then is we, if we're not loving the world, we really can't love ourselves. Yeah. But if we're really honest to God, loving and cherishing ourselves right now, no matter what, our love of the world has just gone up by an order of magnitude. Oh, uh, hallelujah! Yeah. Well, thank you, Keith, so much, and 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 thank you all for listening. It's such a, a talk about a privilege to be able to do this. is It's just I'm I'm so grateful. Yeah, and um, if you're interested in more from Keith, Keith, you can find your stuff at drkeithwitt.com. Mm-hmm. And why don't you tell the folks anything that's new or you want to uh, turn their attention to? Well, um, I. I'm still really excited about the Loving Completely class that I'm offering um, out of Integral Life to help people choose partners and, and, and love well in partnership. And I'm really excited about it, my book, Integral Mindfulness, um, even more so after listening to Ken's Full Spectrum of Mindfulness. It's, it's two really different takes on the same uh, yeah. phenomena, which, I, which is really exciting for me. I agree. I think and, they're both fantastic. And this summer, um, my book on shadow is finally going to come out. It's called Shadow Light, Illuminations at the Edge of Darkness, an integral journey into shadow where I go into how shadow shows up in so many places and how we can grow it in our relationships and ourselves and in different aspects of our life. And that should be out in a few months. Cool. And folks, you can find my stuff on um, an integral view of culture and politics, and spirituality at dailyevolver.com. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Keith, so much for sharing your wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. And Jeff, it's always one of the highlights of my month. (laughs) Till next time. Till next time. Bye, folks. Bye.